Richard Fontaine, CEO of CNAS, discusses what it's like to run a think tank. We get into Biden and Asia and how the new president's foreign policy team will prioritize what they want to get out of the U.S.-China relationship. We also get into Richard's biggest argument with current DOD official and former CNAS Vice President Eli Ratner, what he's learned from looking at China questions with Silicon Valley luminaries, why he'd like to do more faith-centered studies of foreign policy, what fiction he's reading, and if you stick around until the end of the show, we get into export controls. Richard Fontaine, welcome to China Talk. Thank you for having me. So full disclosure, I am a adjunct fellow at CNAS. Richard, so what is it like to be the CEO of a think tank when it seems like half of your stable of scholars have left to join the administration? Are the Zooms feeling empty? Do you feel like you're left behind after the rapture? Or is it more like a mother duckling happy that the chickens are off to roost type vibe? I wish I could come up with a really good on the spot uh, analogy that would would outdo uh, those. But uh, we have had several folks go into policy jobs and significant positions of responsibility in the administration. I've gotten an emails from folks that say, oh, you, mo- you must be lonely. Um, but in fact, four of our full-time people have left, which leaves 35 full-time people still on the job, plus our more than 60 adjunct fellows and, and visiting fellows and things like that. So there's still a lot of folks at um, CNES, but we are you know, very proud of those who have gone in and a couple went in from our board as well, including Kirk Campbell, the chairman of our board, and Avril Haynes is on our board. Um, so we've had some, some good people from our full-time staff, our board, alumni, and others go in, uh, but we still have a, you know, well more than a critical mass uh, still doing good work. So what has it like been managing a think tank through a pandemic? Is there anything, you know, particular to think tank work that, um, you know, this remote world of the past uh, year and change has has brought upon that you'd like to reflect on? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot uh, that has changed the way we do our work. Uh, Some has made things better. Uh, You know, the kind of conversations that, of course, I guess were theoretically possible we just never really did them as much before everybody started doing things virtually are now routine where we'll have someone in Japan talking to someone in Germany, talking to someone in New York, to someone in DC, to someone in California without having to fly people around and, and, and all these other kinds of things, which gives a certain richness to the policy and other discussions that we value. We've also been able to, to do a a number of virtual events and do some creative things where we've had, audience input and polling and, and, and collected sort of input and data and things like that in ways that we hadn't done it before. Um, I think the harder thing is, well, one, if you're going to be at a international affairs think tank, but you are unable to travel internationally, then that's going to limit uh, to some degree the kind of insights that you can gather. And then also a place like CNES is highly collaborative we spend a lot of time just bouncing ideas around, testing those ideas, trying to generate new ones and things. And that is hard uh, or harder anyway when you're in a virtual environment. Um, but on the whole, the key for us has been not just to treat this as a slightly different version of the physical existence we have, but actually rethink the kinds of work we're doing, the, the policy effect that the pandemic is having, and then how do we actually deliver solicit and deliver ideas in this virtual way differently than we did before. So um, going more broadly from just the pandemic stuff, where do you think CNAS is firing on all, on all cylinders and what are you trying to focus to improve the organization on? Yeah, so I think that, you know, CNAS has been uh, very 
much at the center of the most important national security policy debates, really since its inception, including over the past few years. But I think right now is going to be a especially golden time for CNES. One, uh, where we have uh, a number of folks who have been sort of at CNES or in the orbit in positions of policymaking responsibility and a lot of connectivity with policymakers, but also an era where we have a very closely divided Congress where the bipartisan nature of CNES enables us to connect ably with Republicans and Democrats and try to come up with policy solutions that can attract the support of people in, in both parties and, and both in the Congress and in the executive branch. Uh, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on uh, what the United States should look like in a world of heightened competition. We sort of think of sharper as, as one of the ways through which we see where we need to go. And you can apply that on the military side, on the economic side, on the technology side, and certainly with respect to our, our three regional programs in Europe, Middle East, and, and Asia. And thinking about things that way gives kind of an overall coherence to the work that everybody's doing that should stand on its own uh, when they're taking on individual problems or issues, but ultimately add up to this overarching question is where should the United States be going? How should we sort of configure ourselves for a competitive world where we clearly have issues at home and abroad? Uh, what does that look like over the next few years? So that's where I think we can be right at the center of the debate. What do you think CNAS has to improve on? Well, uh, it, it, <laughs> there's a few things there too. One is um, uh, we have some folks to hire um, with the departures. So uh, we are in the middle of uh, hiring processes for a few of our our key roles. So we have that to do. Um, two, you know, as I alluded to before, um, it does, it is challenging to get the richness of the ideas bouncing around when you can't uh, physically be in the same place all day long. And so, you know, that's going to be a challenge until the pandemic kicks back in uh, to a more normal state of affairs, God willing. Um, so, you know, there's that. And then we can always do a better job on uh, on the audience. Uh, we always have to make some choices. You know, we're not a grassroots organization. We've gotten outside the beltway um, over the past few years in a number of different ways I could go into. Um, but you always end up having to make choices. Is the primary audience going to be the D.C. policymaking class? Is it going to be broader than that? Is it going to include the private sector in California? What about New York and things like that? You end up having to make choices. And, and generally, the broader, the better. Um, but it's something that we're kind of always rethinking about, you know, what is what are our primary audiences? How do we touch them most effectively? How do we convey our ideas? And how do we get ideas from them so that we're not uh, you know, sort of a prisoner of Beltway think or, or East Coast think or, or, or whatever. Yeah. So you, you mentioned hiring and you mentioned uh, CNAS as a bipartisan organization. And you've written poignantly about your experience uh, watching the Capitol riots as someone who has spent years working on the Hill. In that context, as an early never Trumper and having, you know, watched the presidency run this course, how are you thinking about hiring uh, former Trump folks? I think everything turns on uh, what they did when they were in government. I am not one of the folks who thinks that after Donald Trump was elected that we should not have had a government or that we should not have had uh, people join that government. Um, I, I encouraged good people to go in and to do their best under what sometimes were very difficult circumstances. 
and um, and and I continue to think that was the right course. I personally uh, oppose Donald Trump early and often, shall we say, all the way back from early 2016 through today. And uh, and I think those of us who opposed his candidacy and his presidency were vindicated. But, you know, a lot of this was about America and about the government that we were going to have and about the competence of the people we have in there. And so I think there were people who were good people trying to do the right thing under difficult circumstances. And there were people who were not great people, not trying to always do the right thing. And I think distinguishing between the two is is sort of all important. So let's talk a little bit about think tank size. So CNAS's budget is like 10 to 15 million. Uh, CSIS clocks in around 50, CFR 80, and Brookings, which also does domestic stew, so it doesn't entirely apples to apples, is $100 million a year. Given the relative size of, of CNAS, how do you think about which spots to pick and topics to hire for and, organ- and orient the organization around? Um, that is, in some ways, the most important question that we think about every day, or at least every week, because you know our current budget's eleven million dollars. Uh, we generally have about forty full-time people, a lot of you know a, a group of adjuncts, uh, fellows who are fantastic, and some visiting fellows and interns and things like that. But as you pointed out, uh, that's significantly smaller than uh, a number of. Uh, of our friends uh, who are in other organizations and so forth. So what you decide not to do is just as important as what you decide to do. You can't do everything. So we ask ourselves several questions before we're going to embark on a new project, a new research area, whether we're going to continue a new research area. All of these kinds of things are subject to a few questions. One is, is this issue truly important? Is the question we're trying to answer, figure out, is it truly important to the country at this time? Or is it just one of these questions that's kind of always out there and lots of different places have something to say on them? The second is, can we uniquely tackle this in a way that's either it's not being uh, handled uh, by someone else or we think we can do it better or we have some special uh, insight uh, and, and people in it with the experience and the knowledge or some special way of dealing with this. So what's going to be kind of the comparative advantage in tackling this question as opposed to any other ones? And then what do we think we can do with that? So, you know, it's of no one's interest to take on important, difficult, hard questions where we have some special capability in answering them and then to just, just uh see that end up as a glossy document as opposed to something that we can try to inject into the policymaking discussion. Uh, and, and so when you start to ask tough questions about those, it tends to narrow things down to a much smaller group of issues where you really think you have the potential to move the needle. The funding for CNAS, it's 15% from the government and 85% from corporations. And, you know, as, as, as nice it is, as it is to think that, like, okay, we want to research this thing, let's do it, um, you know, the lights still have to be kept on. So, Richard, maybe just talk about, like, I don't know exactly what the question is here, but um, the, the relationship between uh, the, the topics you guys choose and then what you're able to get funding around and sort of the, um, you know, how those, how those two things interact with each other. Yeah. So just to correct your percentages a little bit. So um, we've got four general areas uh, or sources of funding. Corporations tend to be about 55, 60 percent in any given year. Um, Government uh, tends to be somewhere between 15, 20 percent, sometimes a little bit lower than that. 
um, individuals has uh, grown and and foundations as well. Foundations really sort of fluctuate, but altogether, those are the sources that make up uh, the the revenue picture at CNAS. There's kind of two ways to fund work that I've seen in the world of think tanks. One is to see where funding is available and then to go out and try to seek it and do the work attached to it. That's not particularly fun. The other is to develop a research agenda and a set of questions that we think are important wholly apart from funding and then to go out and try to attract the funding for it. And so that's generally what we try to do. One's not always successful in doing that because sometimes... There are issues that not an individual nor a foundation nor a corporation nor a government entity is particularly interested in supporting the work behind. Uh, But that's the general approach is to sketch out what we think is uh, an important research agenda and then go out and see if we can get the attract the funding to support it. So let's say uh, you stumble across a five year, 20 million dollar. Let's like let's give you 10 years, a 10 year annual 25 $20 million annuity what would you be what would you be uh you know what topics would, be, would you be going into what would you be trying to hire for what would you what would you think about doing with the money uh, investing it black, back into cnas i would give it some thought <laughs> i don't think i would be very responsible if i just said okay here's how i'd go spend that money i got the 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 the, the question for you right now I mean, and, um, and, you know, again, to get back, I guess, a little bit to some of the questions that, that I would ask it goes to, well, is it over five years or 10 years? Who are the kind of people that we could uh, be able to bring aboard to do what? Um, I, I don't have like, you know, a stock. If only I had $5 million, I would do X, Y, and Z because, um, you know, there's a lot of possibilities that um, depend. And, 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 and in addition to that, one of the things that I think is really important when it comes to, to think tanks is to be nimble. So, you know, if, if we sort of mentally put our heads back 10 years ago in 2011 and said, what are the big issues facing the country on a national security agenda? A lot of people would have said, well, it's counterinsurgency, it's terrorism, it's the wars in the middle, in the greater Middle East, things like that. Increasingly, you would have had people said Russia and China. Uh, you probably would have had very few people saying, you know, domestic terrorism or, or our own sort of the poverty of our own democratic practice or interference in elections and, and you know, and things like that. So it's hard to project that far out. Um, and, and part of the, the way to be relevant and make sure that one is focusing on the most important issues where you have a comparative advantage is to be kind of constantly active in this art of recreating what you're doing and how you're doing it and what you're focused on. So that's probably a, a long, uh, winded way of saying, I don't have a pat answer to your good question. Um, uh, well, my next one was, what if you get $100 million each year? But I guess we can see <laughs> that. Um, uh, you know, th- I think you sort of got towards the central contradiction that I was aiming at is like, it's good to skate towards the hockey puck, but if you skate too far, no one's going to pay you for it. Well, so w- even aside from the funding, what you wanted, if you, if you, as a think tank, you know, the currency is policy relevance, right? And so if you take on something that is, relevant today, but is not going to be very relevant by the time you complete your work in seven months, eight months, a year, two years, then you've missed it. 
Or if you have something that's going to be relevant, but not for five or 10 years, then you've then you've missed it. Right. So so it's to think not only what's what's important today, but what's going to be important by the time you'll have completed your work on whatever the questions are and been able to actually generate and then inject those ideas. And that's sort of the sweet spot that you have to think ahead. So you want you want to to mix metaphors, I guess you you want to skate to the hockey puck that's going to be a year or two years out, not the hockey puck that's you've got right now or the hockey puck where it's going to be in 10 years. So uh, speaking of things that are relevant today, Asia policy, um, Richard, when you look at Biden's Asia team and, you know, the foreign policy team more generally, there aren't many flyers like, say, a Samantha Power was in 2008 or a Mike McFall or a, um, you know, China tech focused CNAS adjunct and podcaster. Um, pretty much everyone, it seems, has spent a significant time either working in the Obama administration or in a D.C. think tank. And, you know, there was this recent Wall Street Journal headline saying that China's policy will be run by a team of rivals. But it seems more to me like it's an old group of colleagues getting the game back together. Um, do you think there's anything that the folks in government now should be wary of, given how much familiarity they all have with each other? Yeah, I do. Um, first of all, I, I don't I guess it depends on what team you're talking about. If you're looking at the cabinet level, it's different. But if you're looking at the folks who are going to be managing Asia policy on a daily basis. So Kirk Campbell at the White House and um, Eli Ratner at the Pentagon and, uh, and, and the other folks who are going to be at the NSC and, and, and at State and so forth. Um, it doesn't look like a team of rivals. To me, people certainly have different perspectives, but they all know each other, have worked together well, and I think can work ably together as a team. I think part of the challenge now that there's a coordinator for this uh for indo-pacific in the white house is going to be um where the the primary diplomatic outlet for engagement with the asia pacific is uh is it going to be as it usually is in the assistant secretary of state for asia pacific uh or is it going to be at the white house or is it going to be some mixture thereof or is it going to just kind of organically spring and i would not suggest that it just sort of organically spring as as opposed to doing some real thought about who is best equipped to be on the trips to have the phone calls to make the engagements as opposed to who is uh, managing the interagency process and things like that and it, it it actually matters less who that is i think then they decide that so that there's not confusion where um, different agencies are seen as speaking out of sort of different sides of the administration's mouth and, and, and things like that. The other thing is that uh, it remains to be seen how much economic policy and trade policy in particular is seen as, a as, as Asia policy and how much of it is um, an extension of our domestic trade politics. So, you know, already the Biden administration has renewed the aluminum tariff on the United Arab Emirates under the national security rationale, which is a very weak, it was weak on, when Trump made it, it's still weak. Um, and the Asia team, um, without, you know, obviously speaking for them, I, I, I would bet would favor some way of demonstrating economic leadership, American economic leadership in Asia that may or may not be linked to what USTR and, and, and the trade minded officials have. And we saw in the in the Trump administration where you had sort of Asia policy made on one side and then tr trade policy made almost completely divorced from the, the military and the diplomatic and the other efforts. And I think that that's 
Um, I don't think it will be as severe under any circumstance that the Biden administration wasn't Trump, but that's something that they're going to need to figure out. Yeah, I have a piece coming out on this this afternoon. Um, but anyways, oh, uh, uh, Richard, I'm curious, like putting on your normative hat, like what do you think the what do you think the right answer is? Well, I mean, on the trade side, I mean, I, if I had my druthers, which obviously I don't, but if I had my druthers, we, we would not have gotten out of TPP. And now that we are out of it, we'd get back in. Uh, I mean, there's two, as you know, there's two regional multilateral trade uh, agreements in the Indo-Pacific, RCEP and TPP, and the United States has partied neither. That has both bad uh, sort of micro uh, effects where American exporters face higher barriers, higher tariffs, higher you know, uh, quotas than we would if we were party to those agreements. And it also has macro effects uh, in the way the United States is perceived um, in the sort of leverage and influence we have in the region and the notion that the region is moving on uh, without the United States and uh, in some instances with China. So I think we should get back into the TPP. But it gets exactly to my point of, you know, who would make that decision? Is it the Asia policymakers or is it those who are subject to the, you know, the domestic politics of trade? And my suspicion uh, is that it will be the latter, if only because in the first term of most presidencies, that's the case. Well, it's interesting also that, you know, we have Susan Rice, uh, who uh, who ended up at the head of the DPC. So, you know, clearly she has some uh, I mean, she worked on this uh, for a long time. Um, it's not like this 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 trade off is foreign to her. But yeah, I mean, most politics is local, so uh, we'll we'll definitely follow that to see how you know the, those sort of tensions end up shaking out. Yeah, and, and you're right. All the the politics of this are local, and we're not in a particularly aggressively free trade moment in our politics on in either party now, um, and so. There's a bunch of considerations that have to be taken into account. But, you know, in the last year of the uh, the Obama administration, it was Vice President Biden who was sort of touting TPP. And I think he was right. Where do you think the GOP is going to be on China in the, uh, in the next few years? It's really become a more uh, skeptical view of China. I think there had been a bigger split. Um, before, you know, a few years ago between those who believed or at least hoped that the kind of engagement hedge policy that characterized the Bush administration and large parts of the Obama uh, administration, uh, that, you know, deep engagement economically in terms of information flows, everything else, diplomatically, even militarily to some degree, would, uh, you know, at a minimum help to make China a somewhat responsible stakeholder in the existing international system, may promote domestic liberalization, maybe even one day democratization. And, and that's out the window. I think it's out the window in the mainstream of both parties. Um, and actually, I see, you know, quite a convergence in the mainstream of both parties, Democratic and Republican, uh, about skepticism about China and its intentions and the sense that the United States needs to be far more competitive uh, and, frankly, just tougher uh, than it was in the Obama administration or in the, in the Bush administration. The real question on the table, I think, for Republicans, but also to some degree for Democrats, is even if you liked the Trump administration's far more skeptical, uh, tougher approach to China, 
beyond that level of abstraction where the policy approaches the right ones. And I think the answer is it wasn't some and it wasn't in others. And that's really where the debate is going to be on, you know, stuff like trade, how we configure our military, uh, you know, what we do on sort of the domestic innovation agenda, foreign aid, you know, all of these kinds of things, all these sort of vectors of competition are going to be, that, that's what's going to be an issue. I don't see a lot of uh, real debate about the sort of philosophical underpinnings of how to assess China right now. Yeah. Speaking on the domestic innovation front, one of the things that has sort of I guess blew my mind over the past two years is watching more and more uh, uh, senators and, and representatives from the GOP side of the house grow more comfortable with spending real money to support domestic industry. Yeah. Do you think that's going to stick? Should it? Uh, how, how, you know, we're only, we're only a few weeks into uh, to the Biden administration, but uh, you know, there is certainly a line of thinking out there that says they're not interested in spending this sort of, you know, real tens, hundreds of billions of dollars on these sorts of issues when you have another, um, another party in power. Yeah, I do think it's going to stick. I think it's slightly more complicated than sometimes it's made out to be where people say, well, you know, there are a lot of Republicans who've embraced an industrial policy now, and that's sort of been verboten philosophically in the party for a long time. At least when I hear folks like, you know, Senator Rubio and others talk, when they say the words industrial policy, they don't really mean industrial policy the way economists grew up to think about industrial policy, you know, economic competition with the with uh, with the Japanese in the 1980s, where Miti was support was pouring money into key uh, key industries that were then going to sort of seize the commanding heights and be more economically competitive. And should the United States do it, or is the free market allocation of capital does that actually uh, suffice, or if not better, in terms of having the government pick industrial winners and losers? That's not really what people are talking about. What they're really talking about is government intervention in the private sector on national security grounds. The idea that, you know, we need um, investment in R&D or we need uh, protection of certain industries on national security grounds. And, and I, I worry a little bit about, you know, the idea that, um, you know, everyone now suddenly wants uh, industrial policy. If you take that on its on its sort of traditionally defined terms, and that would mean that the sort of standard way we've thought about capital allocation in the United States and the market's efficiency in doing it is all wrong. And uh, even if there's not a market failure, you, could, you should be doing it anyway. And if you say that, then there's, you're kind of open to endless, spending endless amounts of money. One thing that I think we shouldn't do when we're responding to China is try to out-China China. I mean, we have a different system. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it can't be that just because they have one belt, one road. We need our own one belt, one road. They have their industrial policy. We need our own industrial policy. They have, they spend lots of money trying to conquer key technologies. So we should have our own list of key technologies and spend our own lots of money kind of, uh, you know, trying to conquer those. There are areas where that answer may make some sense, but we can't just be reactive and say, we're going to just pour money into these things. That said, I think the appetite to pour money, um, again, on national security grounds, is quite high. It was almost a joke 15 or 20 years ago that, you know, you could, any inside government, anyone could get something funded if they if they sort of classified it as the war on terror. And then at the State Department, and, you know, it was, well, you can get anything done as, as long as you classify it as part of the freedom agenda. And then it was, 
you know, at the defense part, well, if you classify something as great power competition, you can, you know, get funding for it. And now it's kind of like, well, if you can classify something as fitting into the nece- the, the need to uh, respond to uh, to Chinese competition, then you can acquire funding for it. And I think, you know, it's that's not all bad, of course. There's good reasons for that. But like anything else, uh, we can take that a little too far. Yeah. Um, it's interesting thinking about all of those other moments and how they passed eventually. So that's, yeah, so that's the thing. And, and you know, I, I believe that the number one long-term uh, challenge for the United States is competition with China, but it's not our only challenge. And Americans in the foreign policy, national security world have this habit of deciding almost on a dime that everything they thought was totally wrong and wasted and that they have to make an all out sort of assault on the new problem. Right. So after 9-11, it was, oh, my God, we took a, a holiday from history. We didn't pay attention to terrorism. We were paying attention to minor items like, you know, China and Russia. It's about a global war on terrorism, a global counterinsurgency. We have to understand every branch of Boko Haram, everything else. Right. And again, it's not that that's was totally untrue. We had a gigantic terrorism problem on our hand. It just wasn't the only problem. And uh, and so then and now we have woken up in the last few years. We said, oh, my God, we've wasted all of our blood and treasure in the sands of the Middle East for nothing. We we overreacted to terrorism. It's not that big of a deal. More people die in their bathtubs than in terrorist attacks. We should have been focused on Russia and China the whole time. And uh, and so now we've got to pivot everything and focus on that. Well, that doesn't make the Middle East unimportant either. So we're often not good at balance. Um, but balance is all important and it's going to be particularly important when we got a raging pandemic and the economic consequences, both on the fiscal and on the, on the macroeconomic side to deal with at home. We, we were talking before I turned them, I, I pressed record about, you know, back in the, uh, the, the Danzig episode a few weeks ago, he had a, he had a little riff on, you know, China thinks in decades and centuries and, you know, I, I don't it completely buy into that, but it's also uh, clear that watching the U.S. Uh, arc over the past 20 years, we've certainly been a lot of um, big, uh, you know, big swings on where the attention is. And, and to expect that the sort of CNAS frame of starting back in 2010, 2011, that China is going to be the real issue to stick with the American people is going to be, you know, is, is, not, is not necessarily a given. And... As you have written earlier, if she was, you know, weighed not having the U.S. focus on it too much higher, they could potentially take different decisions on how to engage with the world in a way in which then you see Congress deciding, oh, this isn't that important. Let's go spend the money somewhere else. Right. And and again, it gets back to seeing, I mean, the United States is not a regional power. I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. We're global power with global interests and global concerns about what happens in different parts of the world. And that implies balance, balancing your attention, your resources, your efforts, things like that. Um, but we, you know, we tend to get very possessed by one big idea uh, and one big sort of galvanizing thing that disproportionately absorbs our time and attention and resources. So I think simultaneously that China is the number one challenge over the long run facing the United States and that we shouldn't just pick up and remove all of our troops from Afghanistan, uh, you know, come what may so that we can pay more attention to China or whatever your sort of trade off of choice might be. There are trade offs to be made. 
but it is not the case that um, they're easy to make, that, that uh, that's sort of one for one, uh, you know, you focus on China or you focus on everything else in the world. And so the answer is obvious is uh, that, that that obtains. How do Chinese businesses operate outside of China? How do multinationals operate inside China? Who are China's leading entrepreneurs and startups, and how have they succeeded or failed? The Wire China, from Pulitzer Prize-winning former New York Times Shanghai correspondent David Barboza, is an online magazine focused on understanding China's economic rise. I've personally been impressed by their cover story pieces, which feature some of the deepest English language dives into China-related business topics. China Talk listeners can enter the code CHINATALK21 for 25% off subscriptions at thewirechina.com slash subscriptions. What year were you in Japan? Uh, 1997 and 98. I had okay. just uh, graduated from college. Okay, so way after the, uh, the 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 boom years, you had you didn't you didn't, you weren't like seeing Reagan from the other side. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely after the boom years. But I, I remember being very struck because um, when I went to Japan uh, in 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 1997, I had never been to Japan before in my life. I'd never been to Asia in my life. And the reverberations from the change from the boom years to the lost decade were really settling in. And so people would describe uh, themselves as, you know, having gone through economic hard times or, you know, and all stuff. But I looked around and the buildings were glittering and people had their Louis Vuitton bags and were driving, you know, a Lexus and, and things like that. And I kind of thought, you know, if this is what a recession or, or, or flat growth looks like there's a lot of states in the United States that would sign up for this pretty quickly. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, it, it depends on where your base is, right. Yeah. When, when you have a, when you have no growth, uh, that, 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 that turns out to matter a lot. So some of this was in the eye of the beholder. Well, I mean, it, I, I think it actually, I think the answer is that it, is it actually doesn't right. Um, because you know, the, the, the sort of Delta is, is what people, focus on as opposed to well right yeah yeah so yeah you're totally right so uh, emotionally and psychologically and politically yes but materially coming you know as sort of the alien from america dropped to sort of make a dispassionate uh kind of look at, at what really is there yeah it's hard it was hard to look around uh at japan and I mean, you know, compared really with any other country in Asia at the time and anything else and say, oh, it's Japan that's the the, the one that's economically ailing. Yeah. Now it's it's I'm going to say this, you know, th thinking about the China context, right? Like there's been such uh, such positive momentum for so long now. And only only in like the past few years have we started to get the, you know, postmodern like on of uh, young people being like, oh, what does my life really mean? Like I have, I work so long, I get really well paid, but like, this is not, this is not satisfying. Right. I mean, it's, it was just last, last night and this morning I was in these, these clubhouse rooms, which are unbelievable to listen to because it's like, uh, clubhouse isn't banned yet in China. So you have sort of mainlanders and, and Hong Kongers and, and Taiwanese, uh, all just sort of like talking about their lives and their governments and their and their and their political systems and what have you. And clearly, it's like a very tight sample size of like people who have uh, have iPhones and like have had someone from abroad tell them what Clubhouse is. But um, you know, hearing folks sort of gripe about like the postmoderny things that you probably heard in Japan in 1997 in the Chinese context has been fascinating in the past. Uh, uh, you know, just, just in the past 24 hours. And do you think that that is a 
um, just a stage of, of economic development or is got some driver outside of where the individuals in question sort of find their material, material existence and therefore have almost kind of the luxury to, to reflect more deeply about what the hell does this all mean? And, and, you know, and do I have purpose in the world and, and, you know, and all this other kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, there's no easy answer, right? It's a little bit of both. And the, I think the, the most important thing to start off is like China contains multitudes. I'm, I'm having uh, uh, Scott Rosell and Natalie Hell on to talk about the book Invisible China, which is a sort of like brief 250 page portrait of the China, which is not depressed that Pinduoduo is working them too hard. I think there is something to be said of of the sort of depoliticization of society, which the CCP engaged in post-1989, really, of just having politics not be something that people are aware of, care about, ha- have sort of... Um, you know, any investment in. And that I, I did a show on this this morning, which will probably are maybe a week or two after uh, ours does. Uh, Yuran Zhang, who's a, uh, Zhang Yuran, who's a uh, PhD at uh, Berkeley was talking about how that sort of opened the window for Bo Xilai, which then she, who pushed this sort of like Maoist patriotism, like, look at us, we're the true populist, which, which she saw as a kind of gap in the you know social headspace of china and has tried to fill it with his all making china great again like we're a big country like we should all be proud we're gonna have these super awesome military parades and you know push all this positive energy about the future of china into all our you know tvs and movies and and video games and what have you so that was not a clear answer to the question you asked um but i think it's it just goes to show how I don't, I don't know. I don't have a sum of sentence, but it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, I don't have the answer to it either, but it, it is, um, it's interesting to think about whether when, you know, people in China or anywhere else move through stages of economic development that get them from, you know, essentially struggling to get through the day um, to not. Um, and then, you know, does that sort of open up this search for meaning, which animates, you know, all humans at some at some level? And then if if there are uh, traditional answers to that search for meaning, like engagement in politics, religion, you know, things like that, that are not available or or uh, are just not uh, terribly uh, av- well, are not available as sort of outlets for that, then what fills in that? that gap? What are, what are people looking for? What do they aspire to? What are they attracted to? And, you know, is it, is what they ultimately are attracted to something that can be provided by the government in, in terms of ideology and nationalism and, and, you know, a sense of history and things like that. And my, my, just my guess is for some people it can, and for some people it can't. Um, but anyway, I I don't have a conclusive answer on that either, but it is a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of go back to the, like, you know, to what extent is this, is this universal, right? Versus like whatever right. meaning means to you is, is very different in the, in the, in a, you know, 21st century Chinese cultural context than it would have been, you know, to some college educated, uh, Americans circa 1776. So it's not, it's not all, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to sort of get into that, to that headspace. And because people don't have answers to these sorts of questions, right? Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, and of course, it's impossible to abstract from a giant 
population or even a small population with the answer. But I mean, one thing that struck me before I went to Japan um, all those years ago was there was a sense in the United States among those who were sort of writing here and there on Japan and, and things like that, that because of Japanese economic development, the availability of luxury goods, uh, the, the sort of lack of, of religion in a lot of areas, the sort of depolitization of a lot of things, the, the sort of the lack of a kind of a big foreign policy. Uh, you know, even even history was contested. And so that, you know, it become an utterly materialistic society. And then people would drop down in, in, in Tokyo and they would see, you know, skyscrapers and, and lights everywhere and products available from all over the world and, and everything. And it sort of all fit into this nice thing to say, well, the Japanese people who once had all these sort of cultural qualities or historical qualities or martial qualities now are just materialists. And, and the thing that I saw just, you know, anecdotally and on a very, very micro level in the little town I lived in was, yeah, of course, people liked stuff, but, you know, they were engaged in all kinds of community activities and cultural activities and all these other kinds of things that gave their lives meaning wholly apart from, you know, what the latest outfit or car was or something like that. So anyway, I know we're getting a little off on a tangent, but anyway. Uh, no, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's totally true. And bringing us back to the present day, like all those questions, I think get pushed off five, 10 years when you've seen your government deliver and keeping you having a normal life for the course of 2020 and the rest of the world, you know, save Taiwan basically uh, has not had that, uh, that luxury. Yeah. Yeah. New Zealand too. Yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. Shout out to New Zealand. How should Biden fit Xinjiang into his uh, posture towards China? Well, to step back from that for a second, the human rights situation and which obviously includes, but is not limited to what's going on in Xinjiang appears like it's going to be a higher priority for the Biden administration than it was for the Trump administration. That said, it's one of many issues that we have in the bilateral relationship with China to state the obvious. So we've got, you could list off 10 off the top of your head if you want to talk about South China Sea and, um, and you know, illiberal technology and interference abroad and Taiwan and, you know, you can go on A2AD capabilities that could push the U.S. military back from the mainland. You know, you could go around and around and around. We've got a lot of issues. Uh, and so the question is, in my mind, is not, is it absolutely more important to the Biden administration than it was with the Trump administration, which I think in no doubt it was, at least to the president, where, you know, supposedly President Trump, according to John Bolton, when Xi Jinping mentioned Xinjiang, Trump sort of said, good on you for those concentration camps. Um, so, OK, let's let's not do that for starters. <laughs> but the question is, where does this stand relative to these other issues? Because in the kind of bilateral diplomacy between the United States and China, I mean, like many countries, I think the Chinese interlocutors will listen very intently to what the number one issue is on the bilateral agenda. They may not do a lot about it, but they will certainly take it seriously and they may do something about it. They'll listen less than number two. By number three, they see that it's not really a priority for us. And by four, you've lost your audience and five and six and seven and eight and nine and 10. So what really are the top issues or the top, you know, one or two or three? Um, and so I think, you know, with Xinjiang, the administration's likely to put sanctions in place. They obviously uh, sort of reinforced the, Trump administration's labeling it of genocide. They'll try to publicize, I think, what's going on there and things like that. Um, the, the overarching question that I have 
which is just, I, it's really a question is the, the administration, this administration wants things that the, the Trump administration didn't, right? So Trump administration was basically unencumbered by seeking Chinese cooperation on anything except North Korea there for a couple of years because the president said that there's no such thing as climate change. It was cold the other day. We don't have to worry about it. So didn't need cooperation on climate change. Didn't want cooperation on pandemic. Wouldn't have gotten it even if they did. Um, you know, and there wasn't a lot else there. The, the, this administration is going to come in and have climate at the very top of the global priority list. So if you get to, you know, you want to be tough on China on things like Xinjiang, but you want to potentially cooperate with them on things like climate, the administration, I think, will say, well, we'll try to do both at the same time. It's not clear to me that's possible. Yeah. And if push comes to shove, which one gives? Do we soften up on the stuff we have as beefs between the two countries or do we lower expectations for what's hap hap possible on the cooperative side? Because it's more important for us to be firm and to be competitive in other areas. And, and I, I think they're going to end up having to answer that question sooner rather than later, because at a minimum, I think the Chinese are going to try to link these issues all over the place. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's also interesting coming back to personnel. John Kerry is not someone who does not care about human rights. Right. And, right, exactly. you know, he was very explicit in his first comments about this that, um, you know, I have no intention of not talking about uh, Chinese human rights problems just because uh, we're also asking them to shut down some coal plants. Obviously, we have limited leverage with a powerful country like China. So the question is, where do you want to direct the effort of that leverage? Right. So if you have leverage, do you and, and you, you can't have everything. So do you want to use it um, in on human rights? Do you want to use it on Taiwan? Do you want to use it? I mean, part of this is also you have to attach probabilities. You're actually going to be able to accomplish something, right? Um, because you could use leverage against something the Chinese are unwilling to change on no matter what. And then you haven't really accomplished anything specifically there. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, John Kerry, uh, it, you know, I'm sure like many people in the administration would like to see cooperation with China on climate and would like to be firm opposing what China's doing uh, with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong and in other things like that. Can you do both those things at the same time? It just going to remain to be seen. It's not clear to me also that cooperation is really what we need in some of these areas as opposed to parallel efforts. So I, I could see a world in which climate is much more important to this administration. They're doing much more than their predecessor and that the Chinese are doing on climate, but it's not cooperation in the sense that we would have to give something up and they would do something, they'd give something up and we would do something and we'd sort of work together. But yeah, again, this, that's my take too, Richard. Like she is not doing climate change because he thinks that it, you know, is going to win him plaudits in uh, democratic uh, circles in the U.S., right? You know, there are there are environmental protection regions. He's worried about climate. His his government is, is thinks climate change is real and is worried about it. And, um, you know, maybe there are sort of like things, you know, five, 10 percent on the margin, which U.S. China, quote unquote, cooperation would help further that. But I don't necessarily see him turning into a climate change denier or weighing the importance of attacking pollution any less domestically just because, um, you know, America is 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 leaning on him in one in one policy area or another. Right. Or even that the mechanisms by which those things happen have to be cooperative per se. So, I mean, what do we want on climate when it comes to China? Lower emissions. 
China can lower its emissions without cooperating with the United States. Yeah. Right. We can lower our emissions without cooperating with China or anybody else. So um, there's both what you're describing. And then there's also just the mechanics of this. There are things that we so, you know, th- this in some ways, I think, is a big overarching question for the administration. They're about to start testing this hypothesis that, you know, some cooperation can be um, accomplished even while we're very competitive and outright hostile in other areas. And we'll see whether that's true. Um, do you have thoughts on, on the Olympics? I don't think the United States should boycott the Olympics. Okay. I mean, uh, I, did, I don't remember the 1980 Olympics because I was only five years old. Um, but we tried this boycotting the Olympics business before, and it didn't seem to accomplish anything. Well, it's interesting um, because the I just read a book about it, and we're going to... I keep previewing other China Talk episodes that are come out. It was extraordinarily popular, uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe beforehand. It was polling at like 80% uh, folks being okay boycotting. And then like Placid happened and people were like, oh, wow, it's actually really fun to beat the Russians. Uh, (laughs) So why don't we just... So then that number dropped down to like 45%. And it was a huge mess because it's not the governments that decide, it's the um, Olympic committees themselves. So like the governments, they had to either... They had to like lean on the Olympic committees or even in some cases like just not issue visas for the athletes um, to go to these places. So, you know, I mean, it's I think sort of the more impactful thing would be athletes like saying things or, or you know, like making uh, making a big show of it. And the, the unfortunate thing is like the Winter Olympics don't have a lot of Muslims. Right. So the 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 chance of that materializing is is much lower than it would have been if it was a if it was a summer games but anyways yeah and, and the other problem we had in 1980 is that you know like the brits didn't boycott so like some of our friends a lot of our friends did in solidarity but some didn't and you know anyway it just it just didn't seem to achieve anything uh i had not totally realized the sequencing of people being excited after lake placid but that makes all the sense of the world if they if they thought that we could see you know uh, I don't know, uh, Rocky beating, you know, Ivan Drago over and over again uh, in, in, in whatever the sport was. Um, but I mean, but what you bring up, though, is uh, I think actually um, it goes well beyond the Olympics when you're talking about what's happening in Xinjiang. And I think it's really important that, you know, every majority Muslim country in the world for certain, but every country understand really what is happening in Xinjiang um, and that does not get swept under the rug or undue attention or, you know, or anything else. Uh, Because, I mean, it is very uh, appallingly serious. And it's the kind of thing that I think the United States, both on interests and values grounds, has uh, should have a have a role in making sure that that people know what's going on. What's the biggest disagreement you had with Eli on China policy when you guys were working Mm. together? Hmm. Uh, the biggest, well, the, I think probably the biggest disagreement that we had was not on China policy kind of in a vacuum, but what that implied for other policy issues. I think Eli, without putting words in his mouth, but what the hell, I mean, he's in government and he can't talk and I'm here on the podcast, so why not? <laughs> um, you know, he, he favors a very, very kind of laser-like focus on the China challenge, the Indo-Pacific as a region, 
uh, and you know sees the trade-offs that an approach like that would otherwise imply with America's presence and activities in the greater Middle East and in Europe and things like that. And I favor not getting out of Afghanistan all of a sudden and leaving it to the Taliban to take over and becoming a terrorist sanctuary and not uh, immediately withdrawing from Iraq and Syria and watching ISIS uh, reformulate and um, and keeping troops uh, in Europe uh, and as a deterrent against uh, Russian misbehavior and things like that. So it's probably a matter of emphasis uh, if you look at the big picture. And to be clear, Richard, I tried to get him on for three years, so it's not like he didn't have his chance. What was wrong with him? He should have been on this thing. Oh, man, <laughs> you should have mentioned that to me. I would have tried to persuade him, but, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't persuade him of any of these other things. So I probably would have been unsuccessful. So you and a handful of other Silicon Valley luminaries wrote a 30-page take on, you know, what the U.S. should do with a particular focus on sort of technology challenges to, you know, rise to the China threat. Uh, I'm curious, like, what is it like working through these questions with folks from Silicon Valley? And, you know, what did you learn from them? And, uh, you know, what do you think were their blind spots in in confronting this set of issues? Well, you know, we met on a weekly basis, virtually, of course. And I found it totally fascinating because there was kind of a handful of policy folks. And then there was the other handful of people that were from the business and the tech world, uh, most of whom had not worked in government. Uh, and, and, and you know, those of us on the policy side hadn't spent years out in Silicon Valley. And but we're tackling the same question. And in, in the starting points for tackling these questions tended to be very different. You know, my there's a problem, right? So the, the problem is, you know, fill in the blank. China's um, China wants Huawei to build out 5G networks all over the place. Or, you know, China's selling uh, facial recognition systems uh, to dictatorships, which are going to use those to further repress their own people. Pick whatever whatever the thing is you want. And, and the starting point tends to be very different. So, you know, we policy people say, OK, well, government could do something. And certainly there's a you know, so this is about um, diplomacy and regulation and export controls. And certainly there's a private sector role. So government can convene the private sector and, and provide incentive to blah, 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 blah. And the folks often from outside would say, hey, here's what a company could do about that. Not even here's what a company could do in terms of the market, but here's what a company could do technologically. I mean, there, there may be a technological solution to this, you know, so for example, you know, another example is, um, you know, while we're going through all this, there was this, all of the talk about TikTok, right? And, you know, the Trump administration is going to ban TikTok and things like that. So, you know, the, que- the, the first question is, what is it that we're actually worried about with TikTok? Is it we're worried about the privacy of, of user information that would be exposed over TikTok as an app? Is it the you know, the propagandizing of our children through, you know, ads and and, and the, the classification of content or something like that. And so, you know, we in the sort of policy world kind of said, well, it comes down to whether the government should ban TikTok or not. And those on the on the technological side sort of started with, well, you know, what is it? Where is it you want to go to? And then are there technological solutions that could push in one direction or the other? Right. Like if you're worried about propaganda, there may be a technical solution to that. If you're worried about privacy, there could be a technical solution to that. If you're worried about whatever else you're worried about, there may be a technical solution or a market solution to that. And um, it, it was really fascinating to me. Um, and in, in my experience, we tend to 
look at both those sets of, of possible solutions almost in isolation. You either do one or you do the other. And there's not a lot that you sort of say, well, hey, we really wanted to address this. We might combine these efforts. Um, and so to me, that was kind of really valuable in, in those discussions was to see how other people have approached these same problems. What other professional circles that aren't all that involved in the, you know, making of foreign policy today, would you also be interested in doing this exercise with? I think there's one on climate that I have really not been um, as involved in as I would like to, but uh, I think there's discussions to be had that are similar between those who are looking not just at uh, some of the uh, issues like, you know, what is the international framework for, you know, Paris or something else, or, you know, the UN framework or something. But, you know, what is sort of the cutting edge of climate technology? What is the array of uh, adaptation and mitigation approaches? What are the economic costs and how would one think about the economics of these things? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, climate change is a national security matter, which tends to be either really operational, like how much gas should a tank use and can it use less? Or, uh, you know, where do you relocate naval installations that are going to be subject to higher sea levels in the future? Or really broad, that climate change is going to cause resource wars and desertification and, and have dislocating you know, where is the population of Bangladesh going to go if you have rising sea levels and things like that? It's everything in the middle that is actually where people are doing a lot of work, but not as much on the national security and sort of foreign policy side as on the scientific, economic, uh, you know, legal side. And so to me, that would be an area I think that could be really fruitful. Uh, I don't know. Is there, is there one that you would say? I mean, some of the other ones I've talked, I've thought about in the past, actually. I mean, I guess it feels less kind of opposite now, but I thought in the past um, that religion would actually be uh, an interesting set of discussions just because so many of the foreign policy makers are either quite secular sort of elites or maybe they, they know their own faith, you know, well enough, but, uh, but don't really factor into the array of of forces shaping the behavior of friends and adversaries around the world, the religious motivation, uh, and and should we have a, a deeper understanding of that as national security and foreign policymakers? But I'm sure there are others as well beyond the technology and the climate. And yeah. I don't know. What would you know? No, that's a that's a really interesting one. And you know, I I I spent 2020 reading. 2000 pages of, of Martin Luther King biography and, and, and watching, you know, him and Reinhold Niebuhr and, um, Heschel be very active, you know, not just on civil rights stuff, but also on, on, on Vietnam, of course, uh, you know, there, there is stuff to be learned from that community to be sure. Um, but, 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 but there, I mean, you know, on this particular point, it's really interesting to me that when we're searching for explanations of our own foreign policy behavior or that abroad, we very often tend to credit a whole variety of different explanations except religion, even when religion seems explicitly present. So there's kind of what you were describing, you know, the role of the Reinhold Niebuhr's and Martin Luther King's, not only on specific policy issues, like should we be in or out of, of Vietnam, but also on helping to develop uh, this almost messianic 
um, uh, sense that we have that the United States is an exceptional nation, that we, we have sort of a responsibility to help in place universal values and, and, you know, and things like that. And, and that, that, you know, that, that has a religious kind of, I think some religious origin and things, but then also, you know, I remember the last round of protests in Iran and reading a bunch of articles about why did these happen? Because people are on the roofs and some of them are, sh- are shouting Allahu Akbar, right? And the explanations were, well, you know, the, the economy's taken a big hit and the currency has been devalued and, you know, jobs are really, so people are angry because of that, or, you know, students don't, there's basic freedom. I mean, there were all these, there was an economic explanation, kind of a social explanation, there were political explanations, but they're quite work often religious explanations, even when a lot of the, the, the activity was, was taking place in religious venues and had a religious character to the language they were using. Yeah. So it's clearly not all religious, but it's probably wrong to say it's not religious at all. And that, I just think that's a little bit of a, you know, Madeleine Albright um, wrote a book years ago called The Mighty and the Almighty, uh, who was sort of making the point that religion was as a force was not, it was sort of insufficiently factored in, into our understandings. And I think since then uh, with the war on terror and things like that, we've, we've made some strides, but really um, only as it comes to, you know, religious extremism, as opposed to just people going about their daily lives. So anyway, it's another tangent, but uh, no, but, no yeah. I think it, I think it yeah. you know, it ties back to our conversation earlier about like, what's, what's making Chinese people tick nowadays. Right. And yeah, exactly. there's no, there's no, we're not going to arrive at an answer and, you know, three bullet points of like what bills we should pass because we have that answer. Right. But I think having those questions front and center is important to trying to figure out what the right thing the U S should be doing in the world is. And the one thing I would just say on the technology side is I think we're getting better on this, but there still is this, and part of this is generational probably too, but there still tends to be this sense among policymakers that the the technology people really understand this stuff and they can give us the answer we're looking for. So we'll ask the question and we will elicit from them the answer without really understanding what's at issue. And it's almost sometimes like you, I saw in government with lawyers, right? You know, we have a question, lots of lawyers, lawyers will sort of scroll away, come up with the answer, and then then we've got the answer. We don't actually have to necessarily understand the the legal uh, argument itself or why that's the argument, whether that's right or wrong and things like that, because that's what lawyers do. And, and technology is just doesn't it doesn't work that way. I think the, the the equivalent would be, you know, if in, you know, 1973, Henry Kissinger walked into the situation room and they were talking about, you know, whether they should raise the DEFCON level during the Yom Kippur War and Kissinger said, well, I don't really understand how a nuclear weapon works. I mean, well, let's just go ask the people who, the engineers who build those, and they can probably tell you, you know. I mean, it's just, there's a baseline level of technological fluency that, that is going to have to be part of the intellectual toolkit that every national security policymaker brings to bear. Um, it doesn't mean anybody has to be a software engineer or anything like that, but you have to have a basic level. And without it, I just don't think that, that people are going to be as effective as they need to be. Going back to 2008, let's say we live in a world in which we get eight years of McCain as opposed to Obama. Um, assuming, you know, she still comes to power. Like, do you have any uh, do you want to play the game of like to what extent you think uh, the U.S.-China dynamic would have been would have been different coming out of that? That's a great question. I've never thought about that. So eight years of John McCain instead of eight years of Barack Obama. And, and then start the, the clock at 2016. Let's let's let's. Not do the branching futures with Trump or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
It's hard to say. Uh, and the reason I guess I think it's hard to say, I guess I fundamentally think that the relationship after eight years would not have been very different. It probably would have been different in some ways. I mean, uh, John McCain was more skeptical about Chinese intentions and activities uh, and was much more focused on some of the human rights issues and the lack of democracy and things like that than I think Obama was. So I think the content of some of the policies and steps would have been different. But to me, part of the story of uh, Chinese behavior, at least under Xi Jinping, is how little it's changed in response to American policy. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think policy should more often be, as I think it is now, directed to responding to Chinese behavior and Chinese leaders that have agency to make their own decisions rather than imagining Chinese decisions as somehow be a dependent variable that is a function of whether the United States is friendly or coercive or shows respect or not or thinks they're a responsible stakeholder, thinks they'll never be. Um, so I, I think it might be different here and there, but not fundamentally different. So let's say you weren't running a think tank and had three years to go in a cabin and write a book. The whole reason why people go to think tanks often is so they can write a book. Um, I seem to have not um, been able to put all that together. But, you know, the idea is that you don't need a cabin for three years. But in fact, as you're alluding to, it really may be the case that one does. Um, so uh, if I was going to write a, uh, a book, uh, I guess there would be one is would I be... Uh, if I'm writing on the kind of stuff that animates me on a daily basis, it would be essentially focused on what I think is sort of the world to come, where the United States is, uh, it, its raw power is increasing, its relative power vis-a-vis -vis China is decreasing, but that's by not at any means the full measure of the story but that implies uh, a whole variety of disruptions to the way international life has been. And then to be able to spell out what that means, reflecting on, I think there's been large um, parts of our foreign policy that over the past 30 years have been very unsuccessful. Um, and, and because of what we were talking about, kind of at the very beginning, we tend to put the hard stuff behind us and sort of click forward to the next big challenge and, go at it with abandonment or go about at it with abandon, sometimes abandonment. Um, and in the end, it's, it's a, it's a sustainable balance in our foreign policy that we need. So I'm describing this in the abstract, which is probably why I haven't written the book. Um, but, <laughs> but I, I see a lack of sustainability uh, that has characterized our foreign policy that has sort of lurched with greater and lesser degrees of success from one big thing to the other over the past 30 years. And, I would love to see us get out of that cycle and be able to see ourselves as a as a, the leading global power, but a very kind of different kind of power when we interpret what that means for us. Then if I had to have a totally separate uh, book, which, you know, would have very little to do uh, with what animates me on a daily basis, I would um, write about the lessons of fiction for the challenges of today and tomorrow. I wrote a little fun piece, I don't know, two years ago. No. Oh my God. It's hard to think. It was during the pandemic. Time passes fast. Uh, you know, uh, and it, it was, it was called, um, uh, to prepare for crisis, read fiction. 
And I tried to kind of pull out some of the reflections and lessons of various novels for how one should think about this sort of global cataclysm that we are in. And uh, that would be fun. All right. Not- would read it. What, what are the books? I think there are uh, lessons from, uh, well, there's lessons from some of the great Russian novels like War and Peace and Anna Karenina and, um, and the brothers Karamazov, so Dostoevsky and, and Tolstoy and stuff. Ones for how one uh, kind of internalizes problems and, and dilemmas and things from some of the more recent stuff like Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And actually, I just uh, read uh, a fascinating novel over the weekend, which I had never read before. It's back from the 1960s, um, The Woman of the Dunes by Koba Abe. It's a quick read. It's only 200 pages. He was a prominent kind of new wave Japanese novelist in the 60s and the 70s and so forth and um, gets really inside the head. He sort of reframes um, Albert Camus' myth of Sisyphus um, into this this Japanese setting and tries to ask, as many people were in the 1960s, what what is this all about? What is the meaning of existence? Can you actually choose one's disposition uh, given your external conditions? Can you choose to be happy? Is it all in your mind? You know, how much of this? And um, and a bunch more where that came from. So, so uh, I could you go. Just, you're could just taking cues from Richard long. Danzig, aren't you? What's that? You, you got that? You got? Did you get that? You got that? Yeah, right? actually, I've totally forgot. I totally forgot. That's where I got it. So yeah, I, I totally forgot. So I got it from you and Richard Danzig because he mentioned this. You know, and so I said I had read. You know, he mentioned the Lonely Polygamist by Brady Udall, which I've read, and um, and another book which I haven't. And so you know, I've read a decent amount of Japanese novels, but I hadn't read the one that he mentioned. So that's why I read it. Yeah. So this all comes back to this podcast at the end of the day. You t- I totally forgot about that. I was going to say, you know, Richard, I was about to make fun of you for picking like super basic books, like, you know, Tolstoy. And then all of a sudden you hit me with the, with the super niche Japan 200 word novel. And then I realized, in fact, no, you actually just got it from, from dancing. So anyways, hopefully you two get to write that book together one day. I think that'd be a fun little collaboration. Um, there's one last one. I really should end it here, but um, someone told me to ask you this, and I don't want to let him down. What do you think the U.S. can reasonably expect on multilateral cooperation on things like export controls uh, from its allies? And just maybe taking that particular example and more broadly on like how much we should expect and what the U.S. should do to help shore up allies who, you know, understandably are, are a little scared to stand up to China on their own. I'll answer that in a second, but just to think of a couple of things that people are wondering, you know, like what to read, given that they've got some time in the pandemic, they're trying to make sense of the world. There's a great Icelandic masterpiece called Independent People, and it is uh, basically about this broken farmer who walks through the countryside with his daughter and 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 all of these things. And, and the question on the table is sort of what do you do when you can't do much but people are suffering around you. Um, and of course, there's like the plague by Albert Camus and some of these other things. Um, and then if, if people haven't read Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie and the sort of story about how you live through political upheaval in India, but political upheaval, that's totally worth it too. So anyway, and if you haven't checked out Haruki Murakami, then it's the, you either like it or you don't. But anyway, um, all right. So export controls, equally fascinating, <laughs> right? I export feel bad. I, should, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Export controls, moving right from, you know, the three body trilogy and Neuromancer and the foundation to export controls. That's what we want. (laughs) So export controls. um, I don't know. It's hard to say because uh, 
if the, the Huawei, I mean, I know Huawei was not export controls per se, but if that was sort of the test case of how the democratic countries of the world get together and decide whether or not a particular um, piece of Chinese technology is verboten and therefore should be excluded from their economies. That was a mess and a half. I mean, you know, the Australians came out first and thought that at least the five eyes were going to click behind them. Trump left it saying, well, maybe we'll trade it away for greater soybean purchases or something. And then, of course, excluded it. The Brits said, well, Huawei could build out the periphery of the network. And then they flipped and said, no, the core. And, you know, the, the U.S. was threatening countries by saying, if you don't exclude Huawei, uh, then you will lose your access to our intelligence. And then countries said, yeah, we don't believe that. <laughs> and, and so they demarched them on other grounds and, and things like that. And over time, I think they've kind of wobbled. Everybody's wobbled away to something basically saying, well, it's generally not a good idea for Huawei to build up the 5G network in a country, but maybe it's OK if they you know, sell handholds in our country and things like that. The only reason I go through that is because I think this is is hard when you get to the specifics. Um, and it's hard because there's competition between our countries, uh, even though they're democratic and have very similar values and may have very similar concerns. And we are um, asymmetrically uh, worried about or, or kind of differently worried about Chinese punitive action. So if the United States is going to slap export controls on something that's important to China I don't know, or do something to ZTE and put ZTE on the entity list or whatever, then the, the, the sort of risk calculation associated with that for the United States would be very different than Austria. Right. Even though we're both democratic countries. So. Um, that's a long way of saying I think that um, we have to 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 work as carefully as we can to try to harmonize the approach to export controls across um, lines, at least of the, the big democratic economies. But I think that in the specifics, it's going to be quite challenging sometimes to actually get everybody on the same page. What do you think of, um, you know, the 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 NATO for trade? Or, you know, some sort of fund to help uh, for the U.S. to kind of help its allies kind of eat the potential costs that would come that would potentially come from Chinese action uh, if they if they do step up and 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 do some of these activities, which almost certainly would invite uh, Beijing's uh, response. I think it's a good idea. Um, and I think that that could mitigate some of the worry about Chinese punitive measures and therefore embolden governments to take uh, stands to protect either outflowing exports that they would otherwise sell to the Chinese or inflowing technology that they are otherwise purchase from the Chinese. The question that I have at the end of the day is how much do you actually have to put in a fund like that for it to really matter? And how much are government's going to be willing, the rich government's going to be willing to put into a fund like that post-pandemic when everybody's trying to get their economies back together? You know, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars, great, but that's, you know, okay, you start dividing that up among the different countries that, you know, could easily go through an Australia kind of experience if they uh, make a move that is perceived by the Chinese to be against their interests and need to be taught a lesson. So I think it's a good idea but I don't think that that on its own is going to be able to sort of turn the tide. A last fun one. Um, what is the book you don't necessarily want to write, but really want to read that hasn't been written yet? The book that I don't want to write, but would like to read? Or just like, I don't know, like that you aren't capable of or requires some 
language skills you don't have or something like what's the what's the like piece of analysis or book that hasn't been written yet that has a question you'd really like to see answered or addressed? Well, I mean, I have an easy one to that, which is I would love to see a real no kidding um, explanation of what the Chinese leadership says to each other when they're making the decisions that matter to us. Um, because, you know, it's, it's like Kremlinology, right? You're looking for bits and pieces to be able to intuit what is motivating leaders, how much is sort of a hidden motivation versus one that's said, but maybe less than the, the whole thing. As some of the Cold War historians pointed out, one of the big surprises to some Cold War historians when the Kremlin finally opened its archives and you could see the transcripts of these Politburo meetings was they actually believed in what they were saying. They actually believed in Marxist-Leninism. They actually believed in communism. They actually believed in sort of global revolution. They actually believed they were under siege from the, the, the United States and the capitalist world and things like that. This wasn't sort of a wash so that they could, you know, have their dotches and, and keep everybody in fine, you know, um, uh, houses and, 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 all, and all this other kind of stuff. It may have been that too, but they didn't talk to each other. But it was really about this ideological motivation. And you, I'm sure, actually have a view on this, uh, but you know what are the, what are the key drivers of Chinese decision making? And I just don't think that um, the book has been written, um, and probably the book that can be written on where they're all coming from and what's what this is really all about. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting, you know, thinking back to Red Star over China in 1937, because like the U.S. sort of did get that right with Mao. Um, in mm-hmm. the early years, but that wasn't necessarily for the best, right? Because what that yeah. what that book would was able to do was convince FDR that this guy wasn't so bad, and you right. know, kind of the his his lionization ended up uh, making it a lot harder for Chiang Kai Shek to get to the support he needed to um, to win the civil war. Um, and you know, thinking about like why this book hasn't been written, there was a Jeff Wasserstrom just wrote a piece on this, kind of interviewing all the journalists who like could write this about why they're not. And you know, there 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 isn't the source material out there, uh, right. which That's is the which is unfortunate. And you know, thinking back to like when we really learned started to learn things about Mao, he had to die, and the society had to open up. And then you have you know books like his personal doctor telling all these stories and you had this sort of yeah. memoirs start to come out. But now the, the risk is just so great for anyone, even whispering to, you know, Ling Ling from the wall street journal about what happened in a meeting a week ago, m- much less doing a deep dive into, into she's psychology or, or what have you that um, it, it's just not possible. And, you know, I, I'm sure there are people taking notes and, you know, 20 years from now, whenever he moves past the scene and the, and the, uh, you know, uni- the, the, the Chinese political universe changes, like we'll learn a ton and it'll be fascinating. But, uh, I agree. That's the book I would love to read. And, and it's unfortunate that we, we, we don't have a better sense. And I don't necessarily think the intelligence community has a better sense either, because it's just something that, um, is, is, the, he has decided he has no interest in sort of engaging in a way that other um, past, uh, you know, post-Mao CCP leaders have, have been open and excited to. Well, and it's such amazing contrast to at least the past four years when our president's, you know, psychological profile was on hourly display for all to, uh, if, you, if you wanted to understand where he was coming down, he told you, right? And 
And here we're, um, you know, we, as you're saying, we won't likely read that book until it's no longer relevant other than in a historical context. I almost had a show with Michelle Flournoy and uh, I, uh, I, I pulled out her graduate school thesis uh, to prep, and it was on the psychosocial approach to international relations, uh, basically sort of like writing about to what extent it's important to kind of understand people, you know, leader, individual leaders and, you know, society's psychology when it comes to this sort of thing. Well, just on that, I mean, beyond the individual psychological drivers of people, which, of course, is important, particularly in a place where you have a leader as strong as she is, um, a lot of times we tend to, you know, assume motivations, particularly in our, you know, adversaries that may or not actually be the most important. Right. So I think about this in a Russian context where, you know, there's one set of explanations that says Vladimir Putin and the oligarchs, they, they're basically it's a kleptocracy and they want their stuff and they want to stay in power. And so they know the way to do that is to have an external enemy against whom they can whip up the support from the public. And that kind of explains the constant meddling in democracies abroad or or the push on NATO and, and, and the, the sort of framing of all this as a threat. And I actually think that's very wrong. I mean, I'm sure they like their stuff and want to stay in power, but I think there's a strong historical instinct that everybody, with the possible exceptions of Yeltsin and Gorbachev, had in both Russian and Soviet history that is shared by the Russian leadership that genuinely feels under threat from the outside, even though that threat is not there, that NATO actually doesn't want to topple the government of, of Russia, but they worry about these kinds of things. And that sees uh, a gap between the current way that Russia is seen in the world and the status that they believe Russia should be accorded given what they believe is its power and historical weight, um, which is never going to be closed because the, the way they think of that is not going to sort of come down to the level of what the actual power projection capabilities are. And it's not, and they're never going to regrow themselves back into a big Soviet Union superpower. So when you have this sort of feeling like you're not getting the status and the recognition you deserve. And when you feel like you're constantly under siege and threat, even if that's not really there, then that explains a lot. But it's a very different way of understanding this. And if you think these are a bunch of just a bunch of KGP guys who were always business people parading as spies and want to make money. So anyway, that was one hell of a mansion, though. I mean, that is one hell of a mansion. Richard Fontaine, thanks so much for being a part of China's Art. <laughs> thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And next time uh, we'll talk about the mansions of the rich and famous. I have a dream, this world has no tears, wonder is complete. I got the pain, all the I'm
的怪。当我们将自己变成个卖场，吹嘘的让他们带感，给他们快感。脑海被金钱和物质给塞满，感觉像是无天不醉的太太。音乐中充满了虚幻，可是我还是要面对着现实。如果对未来有美好的期盼，请问谁又想要当一个骗子？
They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.